Welcome to this message in the Biblical Worldview series. This is a series of messages for Christians. A 2020 Barna poll showed that only 6% of people who call themselves Christians have a worldview that is aligned with the Word of God. That means that 94% of Christians have a view of the world that is more like the world than it is like Jesus. In Revelation 3, Jesus warned us this would happen, that the church would be lukewarm. He also said in that chapter that he would spew that church out of his mouth. He is disgusted by it. This series is for people who don't want to be lukewarm. This series will challenge you to examine what you believe. Keep an open mind and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God's truth to you in these messages. If you sense that your view of the world is out of alignment with God's word, ask the Holy Spirit to help you change. In Matthew 7, Jesus said there are two paths that we can walk in this life. One leads to life, the other leads to destruction. A biblical worldview is the only one that leads to life and the abundant life that Jesus promised. If you have any questions about anything you hear in this message, let me know. So grab your Bible and let's see what God has to say to us today. Good morning. Happy to share again. Happy to be here. Must be doing okay. Pastor keeps asking me to do it. So we're going to continue today in our series, uh, Biblical Worldviews, Aligning Your View of the World with God's Word. When I was praying about what to teach about for this week, um, God kept bringing to my mind the idea of peace. And uh, I wasn't sure where that was coming from, and so I just continued to pray on it. And then uh, one morning during pastors in my meeting, I come and I meet with him and I tell him, I think I'm going to teach on peace. And he says, huh, weird. I was like, okay. Whatever, dude. That's between me and God, okay? No, and then, uh, and then we sit down in his office, and I look over, because he was working on his, um, his Future Today stuff, and it says, uh, Palestine and the two-state solution. I was like, hey, that's the same thing, okay? So get off my back. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe he was saying, hmm, weird, because he was doing something similar. I took it wrong. At the, anyway, I thought that was funny, so I thought I'd share that with you. I took that as confirmation that, like, okay, God wants to talk about peace. He has something to say to us about it. When you look out in the world, do you see peace? No. You know, all across the spectrum, there is no peace. You know, there's no peace between nations. There's no peace between political parties. There's no peace with neighbors sometimes. And even in our own families, we sometimes lack peace. And in case you didn't know, the Bible has a lot to say about peace. In fact, peace is so important to God that he identifies himself with the concept. In Isaiah, the Son of God is given many titles. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. At the end of the first century BC, the Roman Republic was transitioning into a time of the Roman Empire. So quick history lesson number one, in case you don't know it, I love Roman history. Jamie knows this all too well. I talk her ear off about it. But at the turn of, um, uh, in the first century BC, as, as it was becoming the Roman Republic, Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, built his image aligning with 
um, the god Mars, who is the god of war. And the worship of Mars continued um, through the Roman Empire, especially in the imperial family and in the legions, the army of Rome, all the way up until Constantine's conversion where Christianity took over. Um, more to our point, in the year 62, Emperor Nero built his triumphal arch, and on it was a huge statue of Mars. Around the same time, the year 62, some historians think probably between like 64 and 68, maybe a little later, the book of Hebrews was being written. And in Hebrews chapter 13, at the beginning of verse 20, says, Now may the God of peace. At this time, Christianity was known as the religion of slaves and women. The Romans used that term to try to belittle this faith that was emerging out of Judea and spreading quickly amongst the region. And these believers, they were persecuted greatly. I mean, it was no light persecution like sometimes we feel here today. I mean, if you want to look up Nero and the stuff that guy did to Christians, it is appalling. Um, but in these circumstances, facing these great persecutions and living in a state that worshipped war and perpetuated conflict, these Christians spoke of finding peace and the God who grants it. God has always been the God of peace, the Son bearing the title Prince of Peace. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrew 13, Hebrews 13, and let's read our scripture for today. So Hebrews 13, chapter 20. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Holy Father, as we come and we talk about peace, Lord, we know that you have something to say to us. Lord, let our hearts be open to receive your word, to see where we get in our own way of peace, and to understand rightly this concept of peace in the world. Lord, um, we desire to honor you and to glorify you in this time, and we pray that your spirit would be full in this place and in our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's message is called, What the Bible Says About Peace. You know, when giving these biblical worldview messages, I find it interesting because when we talk about the world's view on stuff, it's either they're completely blind to the issue, they have no idea that it's a problem, like how we parent our children or the need for salvation and repentance, or they're so entrenched in their depravity that they don't care what the truth is. And sometimes they'll do the exact opposite of it. This would be things like abortion or issues on sex and gender. But interestingly, when it comes to peace, the world acknowledges that there's a problem. Peace is a constant topic on the world stage. There's large organizations that have been built for the purpose of attaining world peace. You think of like the United Nations and their motto, peace, dignity, and equality on a healthy planet. And then there's NATO committed to the peaceful resolution of disputes. And also there's the World Peace Council who wants to attain global security by enlarging the popular movement and raising the level of public awareness for the causes that generate war and the misery of peoples. Theirs was actually like this huge document. 
Like they had no mission statement. I was like, come on, I just want to know what you do. And it was like this huge long thing. So that is the best that I could uh, summarize for them. And then there's the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, I thought about getting into um, some of these organizations and how even though they are saying they're for peace, their actions often lead to like the exact opposite. We're not going to go too into that. But uh, if you want to look into the craziness of the Nobel Peace Prize, Pastor suggested I look into it when prepping for this message. And it was a little silly how political it's become. They're granting Nobel Peace Prizes for people who have done nothing, but literally, okay, I wasn't going to say this, but now I am. <laughs> they, they, you know, when Barack Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize, I didn't know what to think of it. I was a lot younger at the time. It was like, whatever. I didn't care too much. Looking back at it now, they've straight up admitted that it was literally for political party purposes in America. Norway, who grants the Nobel Peace Prize, wanted to push the agenda of a certain administration, and so they gave him the Nobel Peace Prize for no reason other than political gain. It, there was another one with uh, Jimmy Carter and President Bush, and it was just like, okay, all right, moving on. If you were to look at these organizations and their missions, then it looks like peace would be the absence of conflict, right? They're all talking about war in the world. And so world peace would be the absence of conflict. But let's think, has there ever in the history of humanity been a lack of conflict? Wrong, yes, it was a trick question. There has been, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yes, it was a trick question. In the Garden of Eden, right? Let's look at Genesis. Uh, <laughs> I got you all. When I saw Larry shake his head, I was like, I got him. <laughs> okay. When God created this world and filled it with plants and animals and Adam and Eve, there was peace. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here we see the first marriage taking place. And man and woman stood naked in the garden because they were not ashamed. They had no shame. There was no sin. There was no conflict. There was no reason for them to hide from one another. And so they walked with God throughout the day. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? That Adam and Eve in perfect harmony and peace walked with God. But then Adam and Eve chose to sin. And that peace was broken and there was now conflict Continuing in um, Genesis 3, verse 8, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now they were ashamed because of the choice that they had made. And God, in his mercy, delayed judgment, slayed an animal and clothed them with its skin, and sent them out of the garden so they wouldn't eat of the tree of life. So quick history lesson number two, the very next account in the Bible, Genesis 4, is now Cain murdering Abel. That quickly, from sin entering humanity, we have murder. And it doesn't stop there. By the time Noah comes around, we read in Genesis chapter 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Humanity, in such a short time, sin came in and just wreaked havoc. 
and there was no more peace. Then we have the flood, and the, right after that, about a hundred some years later, is the Tower of Babel. Then Abram and Lot come along, and we read of the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not that long after God had already started over, the people in their sin are back to horrible things. Then Abram sows the seeds that will reap great conflict, even to this day, through having a son with Hagar, Ishmael. And moving forward, then we see the mistreatment of Joseph by his brothers, and before you know it, Hebrews are slaves in Egypt. Okay, I think you get my point. I could keep going through the whole Old Testament and on, but I'm not going to. My point is, all these organizations and many people in the world desire something that just doesn't exist and hasn't existed since the garden and never will exist again on this earth. Does that mean that as Christians, we take some like nihilistic attitude? It's all going to burn up anyway, right? Who cares if there's conflict? Well, I think not. On the contrary, we are called to pursue peace. If you read in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, then. Should we be pacifists like the Shakers? You know, does our commandment to pursue peace preclude engagement in any kind of conflict? Let's think about this another way. We've discussed that God is the God of peace and the Son of God is the Prince of Peace. Does God condone war? Moses, towards the end of his life, speaks to the people of Israel prior to their entering the promised land, and he reminds them of God's commandments and promises. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, And when the Lord God delivers them over to you, them being the great nations that live in the land of Canaan, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. God is commanding his people to enter a land and destroy the people there. And you know, for non-believers, and in fact, for even many Christians, this is something that they struggle with. How can you reconcile this idea of a God of peace with the commandment to destroy nations? Utterly destroy them, to have no mercy on them. The fact of the matter, though, is that God will judge sin. God will judge sin when he sees fit, and God will judge sin the way he sees fit. And these nations in Canaan had been warned. The land was promised to Abram 400 years before this time. And they were allowed to remain, and yet they had no repentance. And so the nation of Israel was used as God's instrument of judgment against those people in Canaan. Furthermore, through this, God was actually protecting his own people. Deuteronomy goes on to say uh, in that same chapter that should Israel commune or Um, take place with these nations, that they will fall away. And God would be faithful to judge Israel's iniquity. And so by driving the other nations out, he was giving his chosen people the opportunity to be or to remain a holy people. The God of peace commanded war. And what I find interesting is additionally, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, will engage in war. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, 
It says, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And then continuing on at the beginning of verse 15, it says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it, he should strike the nations. You know, this idea of world peace and the lack of conflict is not something that the Bible talks about. There's going to be conflict in this world. And instead, we need to have a right understanding of these conflicts to know um, whether it's sinful man or it's righteous. Which then brings us to a topic about justified war. This is a big topic throughout the world. Like, should we not condone any war at all because of the suffering and carnage that it brings? Or is there a reason to go to war sometimes? And, you know, whenever I think about this topic, um, I think about wars in modern times, right? We obviously talked about a war thousands of years ago in Israel, and we talked about Jesus engaging in war. War, I mean, notice it literally says a sword comes out and he ends it all. So a war is a loose term there, but that's off in the future. What about right now? Can there be a justified war? The two that always come to my mind are World War II and the American Civil War. In World War II, the actions of Germany and Japan required intervention. It was right for people to stop those countries from the things that they were doing. And in the American Civil War, slavery in our country was a despicable thing, and it ought to have been ended. And so those wars, in my mind, are justified. God would condone those kinds of wars. Sin was happening, and it needed to be ended. And in this case, he used many nations in World War II to judge the actions of Germany and Japan, and he used the Union of the North to judge the sins of the Confederate South. As a side note on this, though, while a war may be justified, it's important that we remember that man is sinful, and his execution of that war will always fall short. You can look at actions of allied soldiers in World War I and see despicable, disgusting things. And you can look at some of the actions of Union soldiers, specifically some prisoner of war camps that were not handled in, I think, a way that God would say was okay. And while the war is justified, we still need to live with this reality that even the good guys are gonna fall short and um, uh, they can undermine their intentions in that war. So coming back to this idea of world peace then, it isn't possible, not while there's sin, which means instead that it's promised. World peace is promised, which is a weird thing to think about, but it's promised because Jesus will judge sin finally and completely at the great white throne judgment which means after that point, there is no more sin. So there will be no more conflict. Of course, then we won't be on this world and there won't be world peace here. But as the new Jerusalem and the new heavens come down, there will be everlasting and perfect world peace. And believers will live in peace with God there. Let's read in Revelation chapter 21. It'll be up on the screen here. Um, this picture of what it will be like. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. (laughs) 
I was going to say the sound of freedom, but we're nowhere near an Air Force base. The sound of recreation. <laughs> and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen. And the end. There's um, refreshments. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but hold on a second. If there's no peace to be had until that time, then what did Jesus mean when he said in John chapter 14, peace I leave with you? My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So there is peace. Here and now, there can be peace. John chapter 16 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus is, igno Jesus is acknowledging the fact that there is sin, uh, there, there is conflict. We live in a sinful world. There will always be tribulation and conflict. Yet he says that in him we can have peace. So it would seem that the world's idea of peace is lacking or incomplete or maybe wrong. The world is looking at and only addressing the symptoms. They're a bad doctor. Don't, don't go to the world for a diagnosis of what's going on. 1 Samuel um, chapter 16, when God is sending Samuel to anoint David as the king of Israel, he has them go and look at David's family, and Samuel sees all his brothers who are big, strong dudes, and David's a scrawny little guy. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We have conflict because there is sin within. Try as you might, sinful man cannot reconcile sinful man. And when you, um, you can't negotiate away sin, right? You can't find, uh, you can't cleanse a man with like tranquility conferences or doing yoga by the shore of the lake or something like that. That's not how it works. And when you have godless people leading other godless people, what do you get? You get Russia invading Ukraine, two godless nations in conflict. And you get Saudi Arabia and Yemen and the seemingly endless conflict and devastation that's happening there. And you see the Palestinians and Israel, two godless peoples, and the nations can't decide how to find peace. But through all this chaos, God promises that we can find peace. Just as the Christians in the first century wrote about and truly believed, and we have their word through the Bible. So let's do a quick word study. I, I am not a language expert, okay? This is the, what I've found. But I, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek or anything like that. But this is what I found by doing the word study on the Hebrew word of peace. What is the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. shalom. Yes, that's right. The root word of shalom is the word shalom. 
Uh, and shalom means, it's a verb, it means to make complete or to make perfect with the connotation of restoration, to restore. That's louder than all the other ones. It's like flying right above the roof. Okay, I gotta stop letting that distract me. It's just so loud. Yeah. So the root word is shalom, meaning to complete, to perfect, to restore. And in Exodus chapter 22, verse 4, we see this word used um, when talking about um, uh, crime and repayment. If theft if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he shall restore, that is shalom, double. And through Exodus 21 and 22, this word shalom in verses almost exactly like this is used like 14 or 15 times. We also see this word in uh, 1 Kings chapter 9 um, about Solomon completing the temple of God. Now three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for the Lord. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished shalom, the temple. Another word strongly related to shalom is the word shalem meaning complete or perfect. This is more of an adjective, uh, and it carries with it the, the meaning of unbroken. And in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, we read, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel and Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole, that is shalem stones, over which no man has wielded an iron tool. So the Hebrew word shalom, that is almost always translated the word peace, carries certain connotations with it. It's not the way that we talk about peace colloquially or in English. It carries with it a specific idea of completeness or wholeness and restoration or reconciliation. Peter quoted this psalm, which was written by David, Psalm 34, 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace, shalom, and pursue it. And with understanding what shalom means, I think this verse takes on a deeper meaning. We see that we aren't being told to just stop doing bad things so that bad things won't happen. We're departing from evil, choosing to do it no more so we can find completeness and wholeness and reconciliation with God. It's not just so that we feel okay and, and we live with our conscience saying, well, at least I didn't do that thing. It's more than that. We're seeking a deeper relationship with our God. Pastor Randy quotes regularly Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace that is shalom of Jerusalem. We aren't praying that Jerusalem would have no conflict. That would be nice, but that's not what the commandment in this psalm is about. We are praying to see the fulfillment of God's promise to them that they would complete the work called them to and that they would be reconciled to their savior. Praying for Jerusalem is a much deeper, more, um, I want to say like religious thing. It's not about the lack of conflict in Jerusalem. It's about the Jewish people coming to see their savior. 
Jesus and the writers of the New Testament were all Jewish and they spoke Hebrew. So though the language of the New Testament changes to Greek uh, and we see the Greek word erene, which means peace, it still carries this connotation with it. Their understanding of peace uh, was cultural, not necessarily tied to the language that they were writing in. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, we get an amazing picture of what this idea of a deeper peace can do in our lives. It came out of nowhere. It's like they turned on the engine when they were above us. This sermon is not complete or whole. It lacks peace. So in Colossians chapter 3, we get this amazing picture of what this deeper understanding of peace uh, can do in our lives, how it can affect our decisions and our relationships with one another. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. What rules in our hearts? The peace of God, according to that verse. And this is not some vague picture of peace with warm, fuzzy feelings. This is wholeness and completeness that is God to which we have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what rules in our hearts. And because that rules in our hearts, we are called with open arms and we can be called holy and beloved. And we can be merciful because he had mercy on us. And we can be kind because his loving kindness drew us to repentance. And we can be humble and meek because we don't look to our position to find our worth. We are heirs of the kingdom of God. And we can be patient with one another because God has stayed his holy justice for our sin. And we can be thankful because we didn't deserve any of it. God loves you. And he determined before the foundation of the world that he would make a way for you to be reconciled to him. So don't look to this world to find peace. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The absence of conflict is not peace as we understand it now. John 10.10 10, says the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Satan will cause harm and he loves the destruction that war brings. But you know what? If the world's going to pursue world peace and by that pursuit miss the point of what Jesus came to do to offer true peace, it's all the same to him. He doesn't care. When something is removed, like conflict is removed, it must be replaced with something else. And if world peace is attained, it's going to be replaced by man's pride saying, hey, look what we did. We did that. No more war because we're so good. That's not what God wants for us. 
Instead, we should be removing the roots of sin and replacing it with that reconciliation work of Jesus, his blood on the cross spilled for us. So remember the altar that Joshua built um, out of perfect stones? We talked about it earlier. Let's imagine an analogy of this. Let's think of your life as like a wall. And on this wall, there are many stones, and these stones represent the choices that we make about the way we live our lives, either in righteousness or in sin. Some of these areas are looking pretty good. You know, this stone is pretty shiny. I've got that one figured out. God and I were like this when it comes to that thing there. Some stones are broken. You know, we're working on it. It's like, eh, not great. Some stones are missing entirely because we've refused to yield that part of our lives to God. And some stones aren't even stone. It might be like balsa wood, like painted gray or something, because we're trying to fool everybody that we've got it figured out, but really it's this weak thing that can't bear weight and, and um, compromises the integrity of this wall. Okay, so we've got this wall, right? And by Satan's scheming, or usually more often by our own sinful and selfish desires, those st stones can be further broken or maybe pushed out of the wall, and that wall is no longer complete. Talking about shalom. In the Old Testament, unfortunately I didn't put it in my notes, there is a time when it talks about building a wall, and it uses the word shalom to talk about the wall being done. Uh, that might be the word shalom. Okay, but same idea here, right? I should have put it in my notes. Dang it, David. Um, so each broken or fallen stone is a sin against God, for which we are responsible. And God, in his holiness, like we've discussed, is going to judge sin. And in Romans 6.23, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Were it not for the work of Christ, we would be condemned. But 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Who himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That word healed at the end of that verse uh, means made whole. By his stripes you were made whole. Our debt is too great. A life marred by sin can never again be perfect. But Christ offered his body that we would be made whole, reconciled to God. His perfect sacrifice can fill those gaps in our wall. He can take those broken stones and replace them with new and perfect ones. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of his work, we sang about that in our song, yet not I, but Christ in me. It's not me who does any of these things. It's Christ's work that reconciles us and completes that wall. And this is, uh, where am I? I lost my spot. Oh, yeah. And so now that our wall is made complete again, we can offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. <laughs> There is no hope to achieve a holy and acceptable life apart from Jesus, who completes and restores our wall. So Christ alone offers true peace. Every time we read in 2 Peter, 
um, about God's exceedingly great and precious promises, I love that Pastor Rick stops and talks about it. And he always wonders at the, the language used to describe God's promises, that they're not just promises, they're precious promises. And they're not just great, they're great and precious. And they're not just great and precious, they're exceedingly great and precious. And here we have all these promises of the ability to find true peace through Jesus. There's another good example of this that I love, and it's in the verse Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And in the original Hebrew is uh, where perfect peace becomes very interesting. The words used to say perfect peace is shalom, shalom. It's not an adjective. You will keep him in this peace we've been talking about, this this deep and meaningful reconciliation to God, he can keep you in it. And when in Hebrew they repeat a word, it talks about intensity and how true it actually is. God can keep you in perfect peace, in shalom, shalom. And when Paul then talks about, uh, he describes peace that surpasses understanding. I like to think that he might have been thinking about this verse. Shalom, shalom. God can offer us a peace that we cannot even begin to comprehend. While we sing songs and we thank God and we understand that we have been reconciled from lives of brokenness and depravity into his holy will and partakers of um, his kingdom and heirs in it, you know, there's even more to it than that that we have yet to comprehend. So stay your mind on Jesus and his work. Remember that you have been reconciled into communion with God. We have a glorious future in which peace abounds, including the absence of conflict. This is two pages longer than my last one and like 20 minutes shorter. So plenty of time for, uh, for fellowship, yeah. So now that we have a stronger understanding of peace, let's read our verse again in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we have come and spoken about the peace that you offer to us, God. I pray that we would be um, so much more eager to uh, participate in your completeness and your holiness and know that through the death of Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled. Lord, if anyone's listening or anyone's here who has not recognized you as savior and come to understand the peace that you can offer and instead their hearts are troubled by the state of this world and the chaos and conflict that abounds lord i pray that they would take a moment now and they would consider their position before you lord before i knew you i was a sinful man condemned to judgment and damnation but lord jesus because of your work on the cross your shed blood i come into communion with a holy father who will not look on sin, but will look on me because I am clothed in the perfection of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, as we go out of this time and into our daily lives, Lord, I pray that this idea of peace would be with us, that we would know that peace is not a feeling that we have as we as we continue in this world, but it is a state of our being. Lord, I think of the verse that says we are not, uh, we are sojourners here. We are not citizens of this planet. Sure, we live in America and most of us are American citizens, but above that is our citizenship in heaven, where we saw a picture earlier of how perfect and amazing it is there, where there is no conflict. There's no tears. There's no death. There's no pain or suffering. Lord, I pray that that would be what's in our minds, that we would stay our minds on these things to know that you will keep us in perfect peace. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we all seek to align our worldview with God's word. If you have any questions on anything you heard in this message, let us know. You can go to calvaryfv.com worldview. There you'll find a place to send us your comments or questions. You'll also find other messages in this series. You can also go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways that we'd like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know if there's any way we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please leave a comment or review and subscribe to this channel so that you don't miss other things that we publish. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus. Jesus.